My name is Mason Kainrich. I am an historian of some minor fame, probably best known for my work on the Ignition, the term given to the destruction of the great city of Korriban. A little over a year ago, a man who claimed to be a survivor of Korriban's last days tracked me down. His name was Ciro Orente, and he had worked as a diplomat and spy in the city, and he told me bluntly that my book was wrong, and he was eager to tell me what really happened. The last episode ended with Mr. Orente trapped in the Grand Ball as zombies feasted on those inside, and Captain Vasker trying to lead a brave defense against the zombies. We also saw the start of the Ignition as the most powerful warship in the world trained its weapons on the city in a desperate bid to contain the outbreak. I have met with several members of the crew of Hindsight who were willing to talk about their role in the Ignition. Understandably, it is not a topic many want to discuss. The ones who did talk about it, they were clearly deeply affected by what had happened. Some of the crew have never really recovered, but all of them felt that they had done the right thing. If they hadn't acted, the infected would have escaped the city, and where would that end? An unstoppable, uncontainable infection was a real possibility. Even the second-in-command who attempted to mutiny so the order to fire on the city would not be given quickly changed his mind and thought he had been wrong. But Orente's version of events asks if that was right. The usual caveat applies that the vast majority of this is simply what Orente has told me, mixed with articles from newspapers diary extracts, and more to give a little context and more information. I had been saved, for the moment, by King General Celis Castor, who wanted to have more information on the conspiracy and, presumably, to exact the appropriate revenge. It seemed that Celis and the fellow guests from Moriaica were cut from a very different cloth than the other guests. Many of the latter had fought bravely, but poorly, the Dravens trying to defend their emperor whereas the former were much more successful. But even they couldn't win in this fight. We had to get out. Altassan's choice to hold the ball here made complete sense. He said it was for the security of those inside, but really it was to stop them from getting out. People were pounding on secured doors that they couldn't break down, while others discovered that even if they could break the toughened glass, the decorative latticework covering the windows was steel they couldn't get through. There was no way out. Salas was less of a defeatist and ordered his men to work on one window, several of them trying to pry the bars, while a half-dozen others tried to hold the zombies back. I picked up a saber a draven officer no longer needed and hacked at anything that came near us. The crowd of zombies was growing bigger, while the screams and shouts for help were less frequent. But there was a terrible sound, not something a person should ever have to hear. Dozens of zombies, eating. Behind me, there was a loud bang and a cry of success. The defensive bars covering the window had been compromised. A section in the bottom right corner had been pried from the wall. It wasn't much, but a person could squeeze through it. Oren Sionnaeus, Celis's partner in government, was first. Then, against the pleas of his own men, Celis insisted I went. I pushed through and fell the six feet to the ground. It was a hard landing, but I barely acknowledged the pain. I picked up my saber and looked around. To be honest, the situation outside did not seem much better. Several bodies lay on the ground. Screams and gunshots seemed to be all around us. I looked back at the window, and no one was coming out. I shouted up. Still nothing. I looked at Oren Sire, and then back at the window. A moment later, someone appeared and fell to the ground. It was Celis, covered in blood, and he had been bitten. I looked down at him as Nias knelt down beside him. He said something to her, and she nodded. 
she took Celis's short sword and brought it down on his head. I looked away as it took several attempts. We briefly discussed what to do. Naturally, Oren Sire wanted to try and make it back to the Moriaken part of the city. I didn't know what else to do, so I agreed. I suspected we were doomed, whatever we did. Devonier's plan had worked, flawlessly so far. We had managed to cross several streets, moving slowly and simply trying to avoid being seen, when the first shells fell on the city, and they were terrifyingly close. For whatever reason, the draven area of the city was the first target. The noise was tremendous, unlike anything I've heard before or since. We were too far to see the shells land, but we heard them and saw the fires they caused. At this point, I knew the whole city was to be destroyed not by zombies, but by barest shells fired in order to contain the infection. There was only one place I could think to go to. The tunnels. The Other Border, Tenayang, Morican Soldier You're a lot often forget about the other border, the one Moriaka defends single-handedly. There was no grand coalition of nations for those to the east of Korriban. No international legion of volunteers to guard hundreds of miles. Not even any money. We were forgotten about. Of course, your indifference backfired as all of those nations you forgot about willingly lined up behind Moriaka once they stopped the zombies. Ah, uh, sorry, I'll try not to get too political. Different sort of border in the east. Steppe grassland. Wide open spaces that are hard to defend. Yes, you can form strong lines, but there's simply too much land to guard. Hordes of the undead would swarm towards the people, and when you get that many all heading in one direction, it's like fighting a wave. You kill ten, fifty, or a hundred, and there's just more to take their place. And it just gets worse. The horde just gets bigger and bigger. Back then, it was Stella's predecessor, Queen General Cariati. She only reigned for five years, but gave everything for her people. She came to power after Norian died fighting the undead in the disaster at Barillon. She took a shattered, beaten army and remade it into steel. You think our soldiers are just mindless creatures who follow orders without question? No. We're normal men and women. We get scared and the undead are terrifying. Cariati created a corps of 10,000 cavalry who raced up and down the border to wherever they were needed. I can see the question you're going to ask. Cavalry are useless against the undead, true enough. They left their horses and fought on foot like infantry. And there's nothing a cavalry officer holds in worse contempt than infantry. It took some convincing. And I know you all have romantic ideas of an army fighting with spear and sword against the undead. We had rifles, machine guns, and artillery as well. Your war was over in eight months. Ours lasted five years. 
Cariati gave her life for it, even if she didn't die in battle. When some sort of stable border had been established and so many people, like your leaders, just wanted to stop fighting and let the undead rot? Not Cariati. She didn't think the world would be safe until every trace of them had been destroyed. She would carry on fighting. And some of her own commanders killed her for it. She fought with the rest of us. Even then you would see her wading through zombies with a sword. No one knew artillery like her. And ultimately, that's what won the war. We must have fired thousands of shells, turning the grassland into a mess of mud and blood. We lost as much land through that as the zombies took from us. <sighs> After Cariati, there was a brief struggle for power. The soldiers had worshipped Cariati and quickly turned against her killers. With the Salas taking charge and having them all arrested, put on trial, and executed. Salas, too, had wanted to finish Cariati's work, but bowed to the political pressure from the rest of the world. Diary of Captain Chloe Vasker, April 19th, 1886 We might have won that night. The fighting was bloody and hard, but we were keeping the undead back. The barricade we had built across the main street was holding. A dozen or so fighters on the top firing down on the undead. That's not to say that behind the barricade we were safe. As always with the undead, they found ways in. But the barricade kept the massive horde at bay. I had been fighting for hours. We all had. When I caught my reflection in a window, I was shocked. I looked horrific. Covered in blood, on the verge of exhaustion, but I knew the fight was nowhere near over. I don't know whether we could have held our ground there against the undead. I doubt it. If nothing else, it's a question of numbers. We couldn't kill the undead faster than they were making more throughout the city. They were constantly being reinforced while our own numbers dwindled. To consider this from a strategic perspective, the only sensible course of action would be to abandon the city and allow the undead to do what they did and return with a force sufficient to deal with them. But to do that would have left millions to die. The zombies had started to get through the barricades. They always find a way. Crawling through gaps, no human, and I... I could feel the battle slipping away from us. I jumped down from the barricades and landed hard on my feet, trying to ignore the shock of the impact. I discarded my rifle and drew my pistol, as well as pulling the hammer from my belt. I fired my pistol straight into the back of a zombie and pushed it out of the way. I reloaded the gun one-handed, a skill the Legion teaches every soldier, and fired again. I saw a zombie sprinting towards someone, and I ran to intercept, charging into them. I landed on top of them and brought down my hammer. I was still hitting it when something grabbed me from behind. I was pulled backwards and saw a shape looming over me and I fired. 
I hid it, but it still struggled. But I managed to squirm free. I looked at the zombie. I had hit it in the shoulder, and it had lost an arm. Its eyes locked on me, and I swung the hammer hard. I made it to my feet and took in the scene. The barricade was as good as useless. Zombies were pushing their way through, and I could already see them moving toward me. The question of whether we could have fought them off was never answered, because soon forces even greater than zombies were brought to bear. I should have realized this was the plan. Using the undead as a weapon like this is messy and unpredictable. The conspirators had ultimately placed their faith in the far more reliable Barristone Navy. The first shell struck a building further up the street, obliterating the building into shards of brick and wood. The blast enveloped zombies and humans alike. I knew then it was over. We couldn't fight this. I shouted for people to run, abandon the barricades, and just try to find some shelter. More shells fell, and all around was fire, debris, and people running. I had lost my hammer somewhere and raised my pistol looking for a target, barely able to see through the smoke. I moved away from the barricade, or hoped it was away from the barricade. I heard movement, and something ran into me. I nearly fired, but realized just in time it wasn't a zombie. I pushed the person away from me. Shells were still falling. The smoke grew thicker and the air was so hot. I kept walking. Then I heard that awful sound that I've heard before, a wet, disgusting noise of zombies eating. I followed the sound. Five or six zombies crowded around what I hoped was a dead body. I fired. I managed to get off two more shots before they reached me, the first one barreling into me. I struggled with the zombie on top of me, just managing to keep the snapping jaws away, but I knew it was too late. And already I could tell the other zombies were on me. When you join the Legion, when you decide to spend years fighting zombies, you can't help but dwell on this scenario. Being eaten alive by a pack of zombies. Not many legionnaires die that way. Death usually comes from a single bite and they kill themselves before the infection takes hold. But I've known it to happen. I've seen the remains of comrades. It's hard to imagine a worse way to die. And at that point there's no bravery or stoic defiance. It's just... Painful, gruesome death. Something sharp pierced my cheek and I screamed. But it wasn't a zombie, and in the seconds after, I realized it was shrapnel. And I hadn't just been hit in the cheek. All up and down the left side of my body, I had been hit. Fortunately, the zombies took most of the blast. I managed to crawl out from underneath their bodies some of them still moving slightly as shattered bones and torn muscles tried to work. I stood for a few seconds, breathing heavily, but quickly realized all I was doing was breathing in smoke. So I pushed on. I reached the harbor, 
and saw that was already on fire and felt the last traces of hope leave me. I fell to my knees, exhausted, injured, and defeated. I think I would have just stayed till either the fire came to consume me, the zombies found me, or maybe just the smoke overwhelmed me, but that was not to be. A loud voice rang out near me, shouting that they had found someone. For a moment, I thought it was some sort of rescue party. It wasn't. At the time, I didn't realize who these people were, but looking back, they were surely part of the Brotherhood. Four men approached me, all of them armed. At this point, I had lost all of my weapons and most of my strength. One of them poked at me with a long club, saying I seemed half dead already. He raised the weapon, and I struck. I punched out at his knee and jumped to my feet and ran towards the fire. There were shouts behind me and a few gunshots, but I kept running. I burst through the flames and suddenly found nothing beneath my feet. I fell into the freezing water. Oren Sire refused to go into the tunnels. I argued with her, screamed at her, but she wouldn't do it. She was a queen, and she was more Iken. She would go to her part of the city and die with her people. I didn't have time for a long argument and left her to it. I ran to the nearest of the tunnel entrances. I had to use the saber to break a lock on the fence before making it to the actual entrance. Lying close by the door was a dead soldier. It wasn't the zombies or the explosions that got him. His throat had been slit. I dare say Devonier wanted to make absolutely sure that anyone who knew of any nefarious plots going on in the tunnels was dead. The soldier's jacket lay open, and resting in a shoulder holster was a small pistol which I took. The door took some effort to force open, but eventually I was inside. Lamps haphazardly lit the tunnel, provided a dim light. I wasn't sure if anyone would still be in the tunnels. After all, where are the conspirators who weren't willing to sacrifice themselves going to wait out the inferno above? Of course, I had no idea if the tunnels were actually strong enough to survive the bombardment, and it could be that I had just chosen one painful death over another. The lamps kept me going further, as surely some had put them there as a guide. I turned a corner and jumped back as a sudden burst of gunfire erupted. I gulped in air and checked my body for wounds, and miraculously I had been unscathed. I heard footsteps and was too slow to react. Someone appeared carrying a rifle. They swung it forcefully into my face, and I slumped against the wall. I looked up to see a man aiming his rifle down at me, when someone placed a hand on his rifle and gently pushed it away from me. It was Devonier. Semi-conscious, two Iridian soldiers carried me after Devonier. We passed a barbed-wire fence with two machine-gun nests at either side. Devonier explained in his casual way that they expected some of the city's population to seek protection in the tunnels, and obviously any that discovered any of their secret outposts in the tunnels would need to be killed. I was set down on the ground and given a moment to pull myself together. Devonier had the saber I had taken from the palace and was idly swinging it through the air, clearly a man unfamiliar with weapons. Two soldiers stood nearby, each with guns drawn, but not actually pointed at me. Devonier sighed dramatically and perched on a nearby crate, 
and he lamented about what he was to do with me. Every sensible part of him told him that he should kill me immediately, but a small sentimental part of him stayed his hand. Devonier offered me a last chance to be saved. After all, the deed was done, the zombies unleashed, and the hindsight was raining fire down upon the city. I had lost, but I didn't need to die. If I was willing to join the conspiracy in this late stage, I could be saved. I was tempted. He was right. There was nothing I could do to stop it, and if I tried to tell the truth, well, it was simply too unbelievable. Devonier took my silence as a positive sign when he added something else. I would, of course, have to join myself to the conspiracy with a deed, not just words. One of the soldiers pulled me up, and they led me further into the tunnels. I was shown into a room with a cell that presumably once held zombies, but now held only a few individuals, one of whom was Lothoran Medea, the border agent who had first led me into the tunnels, and I had assumed he was dead. Devonier made it quite simple. Kill Medea, and I would get to live. Medea, he told me, had joined the conspiracy after leading me into the tunnels, thinking it was her only way to survive but the conspirators felt uncomfortable with any residents of the city surviving, fearing seeing the destruction of the city might wake certain feelings in them. Medea was brought out of the cell and thrown down in front of me. She looked half dead already, barely able to move. Devonier held out the pistol he had took from me and told me to shoot her. Behind me I heard a gun being cocked, and knew that if I made any move that wasn't shooting Medea, I would quickly be brought to an end. Devonier carried on with his rather fatalist philosophy that someone was going to kill her, but if I did it, well, only one person would die instead of two. It was a very convincing philosophy, as ones that save your life tend to be. The tunnel shook as the explosions above grew closer, and I saw concern on Devonier's face. When he was putting together this grand plan, he probably hadn't thought about the reality of hiding in a tunnel while bombs exploded above you. Then there was a much closer sound gunfire. There was a shouted exchange between the Iridian soldiers, and from what I could pick up, people had made it into the tunnel. People, or perhaps zombies. It didn't matter much to them, as they were shooting them all anyway. After a few seconds, and the gunfire didn't stop, there was a hurried conversation between the two soldiers behind me, and one of them rushed to help his comrades. I could almost feel the pistol touching the back of my head, but I didn't know what else to do. As I moved, the soldier whacked me across the back of the head, and I fell to my knees. Devonier said something about being disappointed as he picked up my fallen pistol, but with my head still ringing, I missed it. It was at this time that Medea jumped up and flung herself at the remaining soldier. He fired the gun, but with a surprise, the shot went wild. Medea and the soldier fell to the ground, where she began raining blows down on him with a surprising ferocity. I took the only opportunity I had and pounced on Devonier, smashing his head into the wall and grabbing the pistol from his hand. I turned on the soldier just as he pushed Medea off him and fired. I ignored Devonier, not knowing if he was alive or dead. I looked back into the main area of the tunnel. Iridian soldiers were firing into the darkness. As I heard no screams or cries for help, I had to assume it was zombies. We tried to sneak past quietly. It didn't work. One of the soldiers heard something and looked over his shoulder at us and raised the alarm. I fired, the bullet missing the soldiers, but hitting a barrel of imperial oil. The thick liquid spilled out onto the floor, 
and I picked up a lamp and threatened to throw it onto it. I told Medea to run, and she took off straight away. I slowly began my own retreat, getting further into the darkness of the tunnel. Then I flung the lamp at the oil and took off running. There was the sound of a commotion behind me, but I didn't look back and ran into the darkness. There was no explosion, so presumably the soldiers had put out the fire before it reached the main supply of oil. Shots rang out along the tunnel, and I kept going. At one point I felt something stab me in the back, but I kept going. I felt like I ran for hours. But at some point, I passed out. And so, Korriban was destroyed. Regardless of how and why, it remains a great tragedy. I was only a child when it happened, but I remember the impact it had. People shocked into silence or bursting into tears. News moved slower then, and there were those who held out hope that what we had been told was wrong or vastly exaggerated. But all too soon it was confirmed. This was a world which had fought hard to contain the infection, that had made so many sacrifices, and it had all seemed for nothing. Despite vast armies and international laws and restrictive procedures, the infection had gotten through. I don't think people can process the death of so many people all at once. The numbers are too big to properly understand. Then there was the fear. If it happened in Korriban, it could happen anywhere. And there were some who thought that city after city were going to be destroyed from the inside. It took some time for everyone to calm down. Some of those who had died had been Baurists, mainly soldiers and administrators, but there were also those who conducted business, tourists, and the people who had simply been drawn by the sparkle of the greatest city in the world. Our representative democracy allowed us to cope better with the loss of our leaders, but there were still ramifications. The government changed and new policies came with them, policies that saw Baristone abandon its plans for intricate global dominance into a more hands-off approach that certainly allowed Iridia a free hand. We'll leave it there for this episode, pondering the different world that would have existed had the ignition not happened. The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Cambridge was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at theweirdtalespodcast.podbeam.com. Siwa Arente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at GrahamNY. G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y. Chloe Vasco was played by Caroline Minks. Caroline is the person behind the Scary Stories for Modern Minds podcast and is currently working on a new podcast called Seen and Not Heard. Find Caroline on Twitter at Saucy Minx. Tina Young was played by Karen Heimdall. Find Karen on Twitter at Karen Heim.